Good morning. Alrighty, folks. We are in. Uh, look, I'm I'm a Midwesterner. You hear that? Alrighty, folks. See, I'm I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Um, I don't know where that came from. All right, so Isaiah chapter 40 is what we're in this morning. And uh, as we've been going through this, we've been kind of reading through Isaiah chapter 40 uh, every Sunday. Hopefully, uh, as you hear this read over and over for nine straight weeks, it starts to kind of sink in, right? And that's kind of the goal. Uh, you, you'll find that memorizing Scripture actually is not that difficult. It's just repetition. It's just keep reading the same thing over and over and over again until it sticks. And uh, you'll find, hopefully, that this passage, this chapter, will bring hope um, it will bring healing. Uh, it'll bring uh, some humbling as well. And uh, all of that as we look through that and kind of sticks in our minds as we walk through life together. So, uh, so this morning, Isaiah 40, our topic this morning is uh, uh, God's sovereignty. And that's what we're going to look at here in Isaiah chapter 40, as well as bouncing around the rest of uh, Isaiah as well. So let me pray for us. God, help us this morning. Lord, this is a topic that is beyond me. It's beyond all of us. Uh, this is a topic that is... Uh, sometimes unsettling for us, uh, but God, it's so filled with hope, it's so filled with encouragement, it's so filled with strength, and uh, I pray, God, um, that you would bring some humbling here to us, you would bring hope to us as well, you bring conviction, repentance, um, Lord, we pray you bring healing through this and hope uh, through all of it. God, we thank you for our time together, guide us through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, in the Bible, we find one of the, the greatest conversion stories, really, in the history of Christianity. Uh, it's of a, a man named Saul of Tarsus. He was a, he was a persecutor of Christians, and uh, he was set out one day to, to, uh, to destroy them when, when he comes face to face with the risen Christ. And he's forever changed. He becomes the greatest missionary in the history of the church as well. Uh, a lot of the books in the New Testament, if you've, uh, if you've ever read them or you look at the index in the front, you'll find the books of the New Testament. Many of them uh, are written by, uh, what his name got changed to Paul, uh, is written by Paul or Saul, and, uh, and you'll find those there. And so it's believed to be really the second greatest evidence of the reality of Jesus Christ outside of the resurrection of Christ is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's a radical story. And the way the story goes is on, the, on that day he was on this road of Damascus, he was determined and uh, vigilant to find Christians that he was going to uh, uh, be arrested and have them killed. And instead, on his journey on the way there to where he was going to meet them, he met God. He met Jesus Christ, and he got more uh, than he bargained for. And the most interesting thing about that whole encounter is what Saul said when he met him. Right? He had never met Jesus Christ before, but he met him, and he didn't say, when he saw him, he didn't say, get out of my way. Right? He didn't say, hey man, what's your problem? Let me go. Right? Get out of my way, get off the road, I don't know what your problem is. He didn't say that. You know what he said? Here's what he said. Acts 9.5. Who are you, Lord? <laughs> he comes face to face with Christ. He's blinded by this light, and his question is that, is who are you? Why did he ask that? He asked that because this doesn't make sense to him. He thought God was on his side. He thought he had God figured out, had him in his back pocket, like he's going he's gonna to bless my endeavors here. What I'm going to do, I'm going to get rid of this kind of this, this, this sect of people that have to, um, kind of stopped believing the scriptures and aren't believing the true God, and I'm going to go out and, and set them straight, and I'm going to have him killed. And instead, he meets Jesus. This is, a, this is not the God he had in mind. Uh, Saul thought he knew him. But Saul misjudged. He misjudged. Uh, this is, uh, he, we find out is that Saul actually, though he knew the Old Testament well, had a God of his own making. 
Uh, we talked about this at Easter time. We talked about how people in our culture, many have a God that they've kind of made up. Uh, they treat uh, the concept of God kind of like a wax figure who they can reshape according to modern ideas and tastes and fashions. Um, and, and really, in many ways, the Bible begins by telling us that God created man in his own image. And what's happened today is that we have kind of returned the favor, <laughs> and now we make God in our image. Right? We, have, we have begun to shape and morph and make him to, to suit our interests, to fit our agendas. And that's what Saul had, and that's when he met him, he went, okay, hold on, I've got to ask the question now. Who in the world are you? And that's what we find today. Uh, we, we need to ask that question today. Uh, so many in our culture... We, we, we find what we like about God, we keep what we don't like, you know, like Thomas Jefferson, we get the scissors out and we just start cutting out anything that we don't, it doesn't fit our agenda or our culture. And the result of that is a God that makes us feel comfortable, maybe, uh, one we can control, one we can manage, one we, we can use. But again, that kind of God won't change you. It'll only affirm everything about you already. That kind of God won't convert you. It won't change you from the inside out. There's nothing radical about that God. That kind of God also that you make up will abandon you in doubt. He will be inept in your suffering, and he'll be nowhere to be found in death. You don't want that kind of God. You want the real God, the true God of the Bible. And so the question today is, have you encountered the God of the Bible? Have you come face to face with the reality of God and not just some ghostly figure that you kind of maybe think about occasionally on a Sunday? (laughs) Have you encountered the living God? How do you answer the question that Saul asked? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? So this morning, we, we're studying Isaiah 40 to answer that question. Who are you? We need to understand exactly, not who we want you to be, not, who, not what's convenient for us, not what fits our cultural paradigm and ideas, but who are you in your reality? And that's why we're looking at the book of Isaiah, and specifically chapter 40. And this morning, we're going to zoom in on an attribute of God, um, and, and we're going to look at the God's sovereignty. And we're going to encounter this doctrine that both humbles us as humans as well as makes us squirm a little bit. Um, I want you to get comfortable with being uncomfortable for a moment, all right, for the next half hour or so, because it will get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I want you to realize that my job, okay, my job up here is not uh, to give you what you want to hear, but tell you the truth, okay? My job is not to give you what you want to hear, but to give you the truth. And so we need to look at it and examine it together. This study will stir up uh, many questions today, and that's okay. Hey, we actually have questions. You can text in. There's your number up there. You have questions, text them in. No, nothing's off limits. Ask your questions. Um, it, it will stir up a lot of questions because I'm going to leave some things untied, okay? We're just going let, to let God speak for himself, and then we can have all the questions we want, and we can wrestle through them, but we're going to look at it this way. Um, let's let God speak to us. Let him tell us how off maybe we are and our understanding of him, and I, I can assure you that he is more sovereign than you realize and more sovereign than I realize. So let's talk about that for a moment before we jump in. What, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What are we talking about? It means that God is the ultimate, final, supreme, complete authority over everything and everyone. God's sovereignty means that God reigns as king, and there is only one kingdom, and we are in it, and he is king of it. And while we're at a panic at our economic and political systems, while we're afraid of global catastrophe, while we're on edge at terrorists and dictators, God is sitting on his throne. He's never taken by surprise. He's never shocked. He's never duped. 
God's sovereignty means that whatever happens stems from his decisions and control. And whatever he does is in accord with his own purposes and wishes, and it doesn't, he doesn't need to let us in on them either. That's important to know. Job wanted to be let in on all the details, and God said, I'm just going to tell you who I am, all right, and let it, sit, let it be at that. Um, he follows his own, God follows his own divinely written script. God's sovereignty also means that whatever he decided about the course of events and all, um, all of the actions in our world will occur guaranteed in the time he wanted them to occur. No one is twisting his arm. No one is blackmailing him. Uh, no one is forcing him to do anything. God's sovereignty also means that God, has, God does always as he pleases, only as he pleases, and all that he pleases. He is subject to no one but himself. He is answerable to no one but himself. He is accountable to no one but himself. That's to say that God is sovereign. It's to simply say that God is God, okay? I love how R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, uh, he said God's favorite doctrine is sovereignty. And if you were God, it would be yours too. <laughs> like, yep, this is my favorite. I like this. This is, this is what it is. So there's, this means there's no competition with God. There are no other gods out there. You'll hear Isaiah's, the book of Isaiah, if you read through Isaiah, you'll hear this repeat over and over again. There is no other God besides me. There is no other God besides me. That's part of that idea that he is sovereign. There's no competition with him. Um, there is Satan is under his foot. He only has delegated power uh, from God. Humans are like ants slapping at an elephant's foot for stepping on their ant hill. Right? Chance is a myth, myth, mythical God that we made up because we can't handle the idea of a sovereign God. Right? So we have to make up something else to kind of compensate for our, our lack of belief in that. We as humans don't like this doctrine. It makes us feel powerless. It makes us feel small. Uh, it's, an, uh, it's an attack on our idea of freedom. Uh, we don't like that, right? Because we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? It's like, come on now. How can we have a, God, a sovereign God and not have that? Men, think about this. Men will allow God to be everywhere except his throne. Just think about that for a moment. Human beings will allow God to be about anywhere except on his throne, right? He, we will allow him to be in his workshop fashioning worlds. We will allow him in his gift shop dispensing gifts. We will allow him um, to sustain the earth, maybe light the lamps of the universe at night. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures break out signs to picket and raise their fists in protest. It's just the way it is. So you're not alone when you feel this, okay? Because you're going to feel a little bit uneasy today. <laughs> and that's okay. That is part of the resistance that we face as human beings. So what is, what is the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 40? I'm going to limit myself just to the book of Isaiah. There's a lot we could say about this subject. But we're just going to look at what Isaiah says. This is a biblical theology study of Isaiah on the topic of God's sovereignty. And so here's what we're going to see. We're going to examine that God is sovereign in his planning. What we mean by that is he was, he was at work in eternity past. He was sovereign in his creating. He was at work uh, in the creation of the world. And finally, he's sovereign in his sustaining, meaning he's still sovereign at work right now in our midst. Okay, so that's, we're going to look at eternity past, at creation, and then today. It's kind of our timeline of what we're looking at. Number one. God is sovereign in his planning. Here in Isaiah 40, uh, we'll find this down in verse 13 and 14. We'll find that God sets plans. Uh, the idea is he sets decrees in eternity past that are unalterable, uninfluenced by anyone or anything. In theology, another word we use for this is called the immutability of God. Sometimes the word is used the aseity of God. What we mean by that is that God doesn't change what he has decreed. Okay, doesn't change. So listen, this, here's how verse 13 puts it. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? 
who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding. These are important rhetorical questions because Isaiah is telling people, and remember the, in our book, what's happening right here in our chapter is that Isaiah is looking, God's looking at 100 years into the future. He sees that the people of God are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. All right, they're going to be taken captive. And he's looking at that time and he's telling them that that won't be the end. That's not the end of you. Babylon is not the end of your people. I'm going to bring you back into the land, as he promises throughout Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. And what's going to happen when they're in captivity and they're sitting in chains, they're going to ask the question, right? God has made some pretty outlandish promises, but does he really have the power to pull this off, right? We look at our current circumstances, we go like, you promised to get us out of this. I don't see any way humanly possible we're ever going to get out of this captivity, can God really do what he said he'll do? He's going to bring us back in the land. Is, that, is he really going to do that? Or is God more of that Wizard of Oz type God who kind of makes a lot of noise, says a lot of things, but really behind the curtain is just somebody pulling the lever, right? Like, what, is that who he is? That, that's the question they're going to ask, and that's why we have these rhetorical questions. The answer to that question is in this text is that God, when he determined how things would be in eternity past, when he wrote the world story, when he wrote your story, there was no one there, okay, to, to pick their brains, right? He wasn't consulting anybody. That's what he's talking about here. There was no one there to toss out an opinion. There was no roundtable discussion, okay, how should I plan this out? How should things go? What should I do? Just, there was just God there. There was no polling of people to see what they would want him to do. He determined everything and needed nothing and nobody to help him. All the ideas, all the genius, all the details was his alone. That's the point of the rhetorical questions. No one was there. No one was there to consult him when he laid all this out. Now, this is important contrast to going in this time. There was a God, another God that the people had thought of in Babylon where the people would be captive. There was this God and his name was Marduk or uh, is that right? Marduk. Marduk's his name. Uh, he's not real anyway. It doesn't matter if we say his name wrong. Marduk. Um, he, Marduk, and there, uh, he was the creator god of Babylon, right? And he had to consult Ea, the all-wise god, on how to create the world and how to plan it out. And so we find out that in the midst of Israel, the surrounding nations had gods that all worked by committing, okay? They consulted one another, like, how should I do this? I don't know how to work this thing out. How do I lay out the plans? Like, what goes on with that? They worked by committee, and we find here in Isaiah, we find that God Almighty didn't need anybody, right, including you, including me, to consult on how to lay things out and how to plan things out. His plans were set in eternity past. They were set in unbreakable stone with no consultation needed, okay? So God has from the beginning, from all eternity, had a plan encompassing all of reality and extended even to the minor details of life. And since God consulted no one with this plan, that means he also didn't look down the quarters of time to see what man would do and then subsequently made a plan as a result. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I had no, no consultation at all. I just said it. He made a plan completely independent of human action, thought, or even existence. Okay, let me give you a couple of places in Isaiah that speaks to this. Isaiah 14, verses 26 and 27. This is God speaking. This is the purpose that I purpose, that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who's going to turn it back? Again, important rhetorical questions. Answer, nobody. Isaiah 43, 13 and 15 says, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? Again, rhetorical question. Answer, nobody. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator, your king. 
Isaiah 55, 9 through 11 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word, my decrees, be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, shall succeed in the thing of which I sent it. So when I send it out and I determine it, that's the way it's going to happen. That's what he's saying. He says, okay, so what? What's the big deal with that? You may think that God having an unalterable plan without your input is a disadvantage to us. Maybe you think it sounds unloving to us, but I assure you that is far from the case. It is to our advantage and extremely comforting to know that we had nothing to do with this. Okay? You ever had that, uh, that family vacation where uh, you decide to take a certain route that you feel like is going to be a better route, and it turns into like massive traffic, or it turns into like a roadblock somewhere, and you realize you took the wrong. You ever made a bad call in life and went like, oh, that's really not good. We had that one time in West Virginia. We were going through West Virginia traveling and decided to take a different route, and I, apparently I went into the blasting zone of West Virginia where they were blowing up the entire mountains. I don't know, but we're like sitting there forever. While they're, I mean, you're thinking, shouldn't that read like road closed? Like, why, why are we waiting to go through the place where they're blowing stuff up? But anyway, um, went the wrong direction. We always make, we make wrong decisions and wrong things. We're painfully aware of many times in our life, and you can think through them, where we, had made, a, we made a bad decision and we paid the price for it. But when it comes to God's ultimate plans and how we lay things out, we, we can't mess those up because we were not there to be consulted on how it would all play it out. This means that God's plan is not subject to the incompleteness of knowledge and the errors of judgment so characteristic of our plans. This is a huge relief when we think about the grand scope of life, right? God has a plan he laid out for the universe and for every one of our lives, and we had no input in it, and that he will carry out, even incorporating, get this, even incorporating all of our failure and all of our sin. That's all kind of part of the story, okay? That doesn't excuse us. It doesn't make us not accountable for our actions or facing consequences for that. It does not. But it does provide some relief, knowing that we are not throwing off the eternal plans of God by our error, our sin, and our mistakes. It's not throwing off the history of the world, right? God wrote your story, and he's sticking to it, okay, with all of that detail. He's working all of that out. Isaiah 37, 26 says this, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what now I will bring to pass. Not I might, not I hope to. I will. I will. I had this written out a long time ago. I'm going to bring it to pass. Number two, God is sovereign in his creating so we're going to get at here is God was completely free and independent when he created the universe. Look at verse 28 of Isaiah 40. Again, have you not known? Have you not heard? Again, important rhetorical questions. Isaiah loves rhetorical questions. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So when it says here that God is the creator of the ends of the earth, it means that he is, there's not a single square inch of the earth unknown to God or lying beyond the range of his presence. Another way to put it, there are, there are no maverick molecules out there in the universe running around doing their own thing, okay? God is in control of everything. God knows every single one of them. He sustains everything every moment. Uh, recently, this, this uh, past week, I read... Uh, in the Indy Star, they, they found apparently a star. I don't know how they measure this stuff, and I don't even know if it's accurate, but still, it's, it's a pretty far, long ways away, apparently. 
they found a star that is, quote, 9 billion light years away. That's 52,000 billion billion miles away. Okay, I'm not a mathematician here. But uh, to put that in perspective, I did look for one. I, I called Dr. Bradley. I actually emailed him. I said, hey, can you put this in perspective for me? And, uh, and so he gave me some calculations. You'll see these. I think we have them up on the screen. I actually screenshot this. I love this. I got this back. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, I have no idea what any of this means. I just know the circle. He circled the bottom for me to give me the result because I wouldn't be able to know the rest. But I asked him this. I said, if the average time of an Indianapolis 500 race, which is 500 miles, what's the average time? It takes three hours average to get around 500 miles. If that car had an infinite amount of gas and the driver took no potty breaks, it would take... It would take this long, 35 quadrillion years to reach that star, just 35, whatever that is, quad, quadrillion years. I don't even know how many zeros that is, it's a lot. Another way to put it is this. If you look, you took that same racing car, and he just did that from the start of the founding of America, all right, 1776. He started doing it, started going around a racetrack. Let's just pretend the Indianapolis Speedway was there at the beginning, okay? 1776, the first thing Americans that we did, we, we, we got a racetrack. All right, so he's going around in circles, going, 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 going. If he did that from 1776 to today, he would have to do that and repeat that over a million times. By that time, we'd reach the star that apparently they just found. Here's the, you say, what's the big deal with that? God's like, yeah, I've been seeing that thing since the beginning. I, 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 call, it, I call it Rover or whatever he calls it. What I don't know what he calls the star, but he has names for it. It says in Isaiah. I don't know what he didn't tell me what he called it. But, he, I mean, he's, he knows it's there. He's seen it. He had it. He made it. It's all there. And we, it would take us that long just to get there, right? You get a little perspective on, on that. And so we find that, that he made the entire universe without any help from you or me or chance or time. He didn't need any of that. R.C. Sproul, again, he put it this way. This is, follow his logic for him. He's a very smart dude, okay? So just follow him for a second. Think about what was around before God created the world. Nothing. But what in the world is nothing? Have you ever tried to think about nothing? Where can you find it? Obviously, nowhere. Why? Because it's nothing, and nothing doesn't exist. It can't exist because if it did, then it would be something and not nothing. Think about it for a second. Well, I can't tell you to think about it because nothing isn't an it. I can only say nothing isn't. If we try to think of nothing, we always wind up thinking of something. There are modern theorists who believe the world was created by nothing. The modern view is more miraculous than the biblical view. It suggests that nothing created something. More than that, it holds that nothing created everything. Nothing didn't create everything. Nothing's nothing. Okay, it doesn't exist. My friends, the world was created, wasn't created by nothing. It was created by God. He made it. And all the the glorious fabric, he created all of that with with one word. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah talks about this a lot. Isaiah 42.5. Thus says God, the Lord... Who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah forty five, twelve, I made the earth, God said. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Isaiah forty five, eighteen, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah sixty six, one and two, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. This is a sample of the many places in Isaiah. So the God we worship and the God of the Bible is the God who has always been. He alone can create beings and he alone has the power of being. Okay, so he is not nothing. He is not 
chance. He is pure being, right? The one who has, has the power to be all by himself. He alone is eternal. He alone can call worlds into being with the power of his command. Such power is staggering, right? It's overwhelming. It is truly awesome. It's deserving of respect, submission, and humble adoration. But I love how Isaiah 40, verse 28 ends, and this is an important little part here. At the end of verse 28, if you look down at your Bible, you'll see the statement, he does not faint or grow weary. In light of all of that creation, he does not grow faint and grow weary. In other words, it, in God creating everything we know out there, everything we see, he, it didn't drain an ounce of energy out of God's sovereign power supply, okay? Uh, God created the universe and didn't need to go to backup generators, all right, to figure out after he was done. Yes, he rested, when he create, after creating everything, but that was not because he was weary. It was because he was satisfied in what he accomplished. It was more like a sigh of satisfaction than a grunt of fatigue, okay? It's like, ah, this is good. This looks good. Think about the contrast to us, okay? This is kind of humbling for us, but just think about this for a moment. We spend about a third of our lives asleep in bed, some of us more or less than others, right? Recouping our strength, right? That's what we're doing. We're sleeping, recouping our strength, and then we die. Done. It's over, right? Uh, God does not need restoration. He is an eternally inexhaustible being of power. In any event in our life, he is accomplishing about 10,000 other things that we aren't even aware of. And he never grows weary or tired from that. He's forever fresh, forever alert, forever ready, always. Think about exercising for a moment. We exercise in order to gain strength, gain endurance. Yesterday, Came and I ran 12 miles over Eagle Creek and over to Pike High School and all around, and I really thought I was going to die. Matter of fact, I'm coming up the last hill, and Calvin, there were, Calvin and Sophie walking the dog that time, and I'm waiting, and I'm just like waiting for, pray give me water. Like, pray get to, I'm going to die. Like, I mean, I just barely made it, you know, the 12 miles. I, and I think about that with God. To, we, we, do, we do that to gain strength, right? To gain endurance. I'm going to run to any mini. We've got to build up strength, build up mileage to kind of be able to finish and accomplish that goal. We have to, in some ways, tear down muscle to rebuild and make ourselves stronger and endure. God's power is inexhaustible. He doesn't need to work out. He didn't break a sweat in creating the entire universe. He just spoke it into existence. I love uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series uh, by, by Lewis, he talks about how Aslan, who's kind of the representative kind of Christ figure, uh, spoke the word and he sang it into existence. He started, the lion started singing and out came mountains and hills and started popping up everywhere. Um, God singing into existence and out popped universes and planets and stars. I mean, he had, he's got galaxies like dripping from his fingertips. Mind-blowing, right? So what? This means that God is able. Just think about that one for a moment. This means, and all of that we talked about, means God is able. Whatever comes into your mind that seems impossible, God is able. Whatever seems too hard, God is able. Whatever seems insurmountable, God is able. Whatever seem, whoever seems too lost, God is able. There's nothing too big in your life for God to handle. As a matter of fact, he is involved in it as we speak. He doesn't grow weary in helping his children. He doesn't throw up his hands in disgust at his own people, you know, in exhaustion, saying, I've tried, I can't do anything to move them. They're just a lost cause. Your rebellion hasn't exhausted a single ounce of energy from God, and yet he's still attentive. Matter of fact, he has. Um, is currently, currently like the prodigal's father, and, and we read about it in Luke, watching for you. And will forever, if you're his own, he will forever carry you, rebellion and hard-heartedness in all. Listen to this in Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. Listen to me. 
This is God speaking. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and will save. Carry you all the way through. Listen, God, God's, this is important for you to understand this because this may sound like a blanket statement I've made so far, but God's sovereign creating power is not able to be tapped if you are not his. It's not a blanket promise to everybody in the created world. God's power is not engaged to help those who fight against him, only for those who have come all the way to Christ and surrendered. The, the sovereign power of God will not be your shield. This is important for you to get this perspective. The sovereign power of God to create the earth will not be a shield to block you from him. It'll be a sword coming against you. I love how Thomas Watson, old Puritan, put it this way. It's better to meet God with tears in your eyes than weapons in your hands. You may overcome him sooner by repentance than by resistance. That is so true. You will overcome him sooner by repentance than by resistance. If you do repent, if you do come all the way to Christ, you have the power of the Godhead on your side. Think about that. God has the power that created the world working for you who are his and is working, and we get this in Romans, is working actually for your good too. It's not just working, just working's sake. It's for his glory, your good's all wrapped up. We'll see this next week. We'll look at God's wisdom. We'll see how all that works out. all, All this power that God has has an equal affection and love for you at the same time. I had a new believer, I remember in L.A., I remember having this conversation. It never dawned on me before. I was talking to him, and he was like, we're talking about prayer, and he's like, yeah, I don't really talk to God much. I don't, I don't share too much with him. I'm like, well, well, why not? He goes, well, he's got more important stuff to do out there in the universe. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. My problems are, like, so insignificant. Why would I, why would I even take up his time? And I realized, I'm going, you don't understand. Like, like the, the burden, the wound of your heart is as important as a, as, a nat, as a catastrophe on the other side of the world. Like, all of those things are just as important to God. That's why he says in First Peter, cast all your cares on me. All of them. Why? Because I care for you. That's what he says. Because I care for you. Put, put them down. Whatever they are, whatever, how insignificant they may seem to you, they are significant to God. Number three, lastly, God is sovereign in his sustaining. The idea here in our verses 21 through 24 is that God is still active today. Those plans he worked out in eternity past, those things he got rolling in creation of the world are being worked out to perfection right now. We looked at this passage when we looked at God's eternality, but look at it from God's sovereignty perspective. Verse 21, do you not know? Here's our rhetorical questions again. Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Stretch out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely are they taken root in the earth. He blows on them, they wither, the tempest carries them away like stubble. So the image is that God is seated here above the circle of the earth. It's a figurative expression for God kind of sitting on his throne, ruling over everything that's happening here. And to illustrate that, he chooses to talk about how he rules over princes. You see that? Princes and rulers. He is saying that he says that they literally are nothing to him. <laughs> nothing. Um, it says they're like a seedling that's barely planted in the ground. He merely blows on them, more like a yawn, and just it's like a big, massive hurricane, just whoosh, blows them right away. Why does he choose rules and princes? Why does he bring them up? This is a logical argument. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If these are nothing to him, okay, 
how much less the other, other, others of us. If God controls the king's heart and raises them up and brings them down, surely he controls everything else, right? We call this in theology God's providence, right? It's God's constant care for and absolute rule over all of his creation. So this means that God didn't create this world and leave people on it just to fend for themselves. Some people believe that. That's not what it's saying at all. He's actively preserving, guiding, maintaining, and engaged in everything. His hands are in everything. You've heard of a helicopter parent? Well, God's kind of like a helicopter God. Like his, his hands are in everything, every, every minute detail. Matter of fact, if his hands weren't in everything, things would fall apart. In the book of Colossians, it'll tell us that Jesus holds all things together so that water continues to act like water. Paper continues to act like paper. It doesn't growl and start to bite you, right? I mean, it's, it's all held into what it actually is. Matter of fact, his providence supplies science with its constants to be able to do science. So this doctrine also means that God never fails to accomplish what he sets out to do because nothing gets in his way. There's no such thing as random chance. Again, good luck, blind fate, or karma. It's just God. This is in Isaiah 44, 6-8. Thus says the Lord, the king of, the, of Israel is his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who's like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. <laughs> Isaiah 48, 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth. I announced them, and then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. That's what is coming to pass is occurring because it is and always has been part of God's plan. He's not looking into some celestial kind of crystal ball and thus knowing what, determining what will happen. He's determining what will happen and making it happen. You say, well, Chris, what exactly is God sovereign over then? What, 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 what thing, what exactly is he in control of? And actually the book of Isaiah gives us a lot of things that God is in control. I'm just going to, just, I'm just going to look at Isaiah and give you about six different things here that specifically God is sovereign over just from Isaiah. Okay? A lot of other places we could go, but let's just look here. Number one, he's sovereign over angels. Isaiah 14, this is both good and bad, okay? evil, demons as well. Isaiah 14, 12 and 15, how you have fallen from earth, O day star, son of dawn, it's Lucifer, we get that word from. Um, how you are cut to the ground, you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Isaiah 27, 1, in that day... The Lord with his, hand, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Again, a picture of Satan. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon, right? So there are some out there that run around scared of the devil, right? Terrified, like under every rock somewhere, as if there's some idea of there's like these two gods duking it out, right? There's God and there's Satan, and you're kind of hoping that God wins this one. You know, you're just kind of looking for the competition. That sounds very Hollywood because that's what it is. <laughs> it's Hollywood, Satan is not sovereign. He is not God. He is a created being that God has put under his feet. When you see Satan in the Bible, when even when you see demons, read the Gospels and see Jesus. I mean, they're terrified of him. They even ask, are you here to torment us before the time? We know we're, we know we're going to get it. <laughs> are you here to do it now? Um, you go to Job, Satan has to ask permission. And only, he only do what God allows him to do, okay? It's important that you understand that. He only has delegated authority as God gives it to him. Uh, number two, God's sovereign over animals. This one we don't have too much of a problem with because it's animals. We, we feel like that's okay, but here's what he says. Isaiah 34, 15 and 16. 
There the owl nests, lays and hatches, and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, his spirit has gathered them. So he's pulled them all together. You see those all in flight, and he's all moving them. Isaiah 46, 11, Call on a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I purpose it, I will do it. So today, take a good look at those Canadian geese. You know, those guys are all over the place, right? When we first got here, by the way, we were from Los Angeles, and my kids had never seen a Canadian goose. I guess that's how you say that, right? Um, before, and, uh, when, and we were at the, where were we at? I forget what house we were, and we, we saw like three of them fly over, and my, and my oldest son like ducked, like, whoa, it's like a drive-by or something. They like, dive down. I'm like, don't worry, man, that, that is, that is LA, that's, that's Indiana's helicopters right there. There they go, you know, we're used to like helicopters and all that, and it's like, oh, geese. But take a good look at them. Stoop down, observe the anthill today. Look at God's sovereignty even in the midst of all the creatures that are kind of out there. Marvel at God moving, orchestrating those things. Number three, this is where it gets uncomfortable for us. God is sovereign over disaster. Isaiah 31, verse 2. Yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words. Speaking of God. Isaiah 45, 7, probably the most strongest verse on this. I form light, God says. I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. And the Lord does all of these things. Uh, we don't like that. That's what it says. Brings up a lot of questions. That's okay. Startling fact is, about all of this, is that God does more than just accept responsibility. Notice the verse. He doesn't just accept responsibility like, okay, I'll, t- I'll take that. I'll, uh, I'll fix this. He's proactive and actually claims it. Um, Sarah Edwards, when her husband, Jonathan Edwards, died, um, said this. He said, uh, she, she was speaking to her daughter. Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may all kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. For the Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, speaking of Jonathan, so long. My God lives. He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and just love to be. It was hard. She wept. It was painful. But at the same time, she's going, okay, God was in control of all of this disaster that was around me. Number four, sovereign over weather. This is an Indiana uh, thing here. <laughs> Isaiah 50. It's, like, it's almost like a rite of passage to complain about the weather here, right? Okay. Isaiah 50, 2 and 3 says, Behold... By my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water, die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Right? Isaiah 55, 15. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves foam. Like all the winds that come up and cause the waves. It's a, I'm in control of all of that stuff. God commands the stars, the weather, and the wind. And this hurts. We complain about the weather, my friends. We are by, by default complaining against God. I'm just as guilty, all right? We're complaining because it, we got some opportunities, okay? There's some opportunities around here to complain for that. But God's going, okay, I'm controlling all of that. We go to the Psalms, says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will what? Rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, let's own that, all right? Let's own that. So next time you have your friend around you complaining about the weather, go back to that, all right? God is in control of all of that, okay? He's in control of all the weather. Number five, God is sovereign over nations. Isaiah 5 26 through 27, he will raise a signal for nations afar off. I love this. He will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. <laughs> He's just going to whistle for them. And they're gonna, whole nations are going to move when he just whistles. Isaiah 17, 13 through 14, the nations roar like a roar in many waters. 
But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind, whirling dust before the storm. At evening, evening time, behold, terror, but before, before morning, there are no more. They're gone. He just, it's like moving, it's like playing the, um, I'm trying to think of the board game with the, 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 the world conquering, come on guys, what is this called? Risk, thank you. Risk. Yeah, it's like playing risk. God's like playing divine risk. Like, yeah, let's just move this nation around over here. He just has sovereign power over all of that. And I love how God compares the mighty nations of the ancient Near East and the dominant nations of the world today to a puppy dog that he just, come here, and, and it moves. Right? It just whistles for them. So to put that in perspective for you, I did a little picture for you here. Kim Jong-un is no more powerful than my little buddy Dodger. They have some similarities, right? <laughs> but I mean, I mean, it's funny, but I'm serious. Like, he says, I just whistle like a dog. I whistle for them and they move. God is in control of all of that. Everything from the puppy to him, right? They're all, it's all a part of his, his, his plan. The so-called sovereign nations of the world are nothing more than instruments in the hand of God to accomplish his will. All right, number six. This is where we get uncomfortable. Sovereign over people, right? Isaiah 22, 17, 18 says this, Behold, the Lord will, will hurl you violent, away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball. <laughs> it's a pretty graphic image, right? It's going to just toss you. Isaiah 44, 24 through 28, I am the Lord who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, spread out the earth from, by myself. Frustrates the signs of liars, makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes our knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant, fulfills the counsel of the messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and all the cities of Judea, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, who was an ancient kind of pagan king, he's my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purposes." It's like he's speaking to a sovereign, a dictator of another nation. He goes, yeah, he's my shepherd. I'm going to use him, right? Isaiah 45, speaking of the same person, Cyrus here, he says this. This says the Lord to his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belt of kings and to open doors before him. The gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. It's again, get perspective here. This is God speaking of, a, of, a, of another nation's king. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you don't know me. <laughs> I name you. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rise of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He's speaking to a, an unbelieving king. You go to Proverbs, and it'll talk about how he, like a channel of water turns, like God just turns the heart of the king, right? He just moves him. You say, so what? Again, this means that nothing is too large or too small to escape God's sovereign hand. So the spider building its web on the corner, you know, of the room, Hitler marching his armies across Europe are both under God's control. There's a single event in the entire universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. If there's a single event that can happen outside of God's control, we cannot trust him. Just keep that in your mind. We cannot trust him if that's not the case. That doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. It doesn't mean we don't have our questions. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with the reality that's in front of us. It doesn't mean that we don't have our doubts. But it does mean at the end of the day we can trust God because he is in control of all things. Yes, we can live in the assurance that God is present and God is active in our lives. 
We are in his care and can therefore face the future confidently, knowing that things are not happening by chance. We can face danger knowing that we're not, he's not unaware or uninvolved. Rather than be offended over God's assertion of his sovereignty in both good and calamity, we should be comforted by that. Whatever our particular calamity or adversity may be, we may be sure that the Father has a loving purpose for all that. And again, next week we're going to talk about the wisdom of God and how all that works out. You say, well, I don't care, Chris. I still don't like it. You fail to realize that without this absolute power okay, of God, his mercy would be just feeble pity. Oh, well, he just kind of hopes he can do something. Uh, his promises would just be empty noise. His threats would be a mere scarecrow. There, there would be no guarantees, no absolutes, and no hope. For, uh, to be honest with you, for the whole thing, is just like a crapshoot out there, and the God of chance is throwing the dice. That's what we have to come to. That's the other option. So we should wrestle with God's sovereignty, but at the end of the day, we need to remember that, my friends, we are the clay, and he is the potter. Maybe you've heard this before. It's, it says it in Romans, but it actually came from Isaiah. Paul's just quoting Isaiah. For us to debate with God is as ridiculous as that coffee cup you had this morning, arguing with you, arguing with you if you made it, and be like, I want my handle on the other side. You're like, you're a coffee pot. You're a cup. I'll put the handle there because I wanted to, right? Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to you who strive with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Right? So this pot's complaint doesn't have a handle. Like, I want a handle. Give me a handle. Right? So this doctrine really should crush our pride. It's just, just a, think about it. I'm just a, I'm a piece of clay trying to explain to other pieces of clay what the potter's like. Right? So I'm in a challenge here as well. And I don't know everything, and nor should I. An absolute sovereign God is a hard pill to swallow. But I want you to know their only hope as pieces of clay is that the potter would actually go in a way to reveal himself to us. And you know what? The potter did reveal himself to us as pieces of clay. This is how the, the Bible rolls out, right? He had a sovereign plan laid out in eternity past. Revelation would even say Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It should bog your mind. Like, wait a minute, how did that, what? It just means it was all part of the plan. He had a plan that would involve our sin. Think about this. And his righteousness colliding on a hill called Calvary. You see, the potter would send his son to explain him, and we would crush him. And yet, all of that would be part of his plan to actually reveal himself to us and to save us from destruction. Isaiah would put it this way. I'm going to read the New Living Translation of this one because I like the way it puts it. Psalm, um, Isaiah 53, 8-10. Speaking of Jesus, he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was, here it is, the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. So you may have a lot of questions about the injustices, the wounds, the heartaches around us, but at the end of the day, there are two things we cannot say. We cannot say that God has no control, and we cannot say that God doesn't love us because the cross proves both of those points. The cross proves that God is in complete control of all things. For if he directed okay, the path of his son into the greatest injustice, whatever injustice you have faced, it is it's still not compared to the greatest injustice in the world is the innocent, holy son of God being murdered. All right? If God had that scripted, which he did from eternity past, then we can't say that he's not in control of other injustices and things that happen in the world. We also, at the same time, can say if Jesus would willingly go through all of that injustice for us, he would actually go through with the plan that he scripted, 
and he would go through all of that, then we can't say he doesn't love us. Do you see that? He is completely in control, and he does love us. And that just helps us navigate and guide ourselves through this very difficult thing called life. And again, next week, we're going to look at God's wisdom and how, how all this works out in Isaiah and how God's wisdom collides with God's love and God's sovereignty and kind of help us process a lot of pain and suffering. All right, we'll look at that next week. But we're going to go to communion to reflect on, as it were, our potter. We are the clay who made him, revealed himself to us, who went to the cross and died for us, proving his complete control. So he has control over everything in your life, but also he completely loves you. And as you wrestle with that, take some time, quiet time, to reflect on that. Wrestle with that. It's okay. It's okay you wrestle with it. It's okay you think of all these tragedies and sufferings and things around you. Take that to God. Lay it down before him. Um, if you're a believer today, you're welcome to come to the tables in the back or in the front. There's bread, there's juice. It's, just, it's a, there to take in remembrance of him. His body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. We give our offerings as a response. If you don't know Christ, if this idea of a sovereign God in control of all things is kind of a just mind bender for you and you don't quite understand what in the world is going on and you want to know this God and you're drawn into that, we want to answer your questions. We want to help navigate you, point you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. There'll be people here to pray for you, Christian or non-Christian, right? Anything you've got to lay down, hey, let them pray for you. Uh, they'll be here for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to reflect on your sovereignty. God, it's a humbling doctrine and yet a hopeful doctrine, and I pray, God, that um, you would help us as each of us have our questions, have our doubts, have our concerns. Um, God, that you would help us uh, work through that. Guide us and lead us, God, through this, and uh, help us to move out today as your people, confident in your plan laid out from the foundations of the earth. God, you're going to draw people to yourself. People are going to get saved, and God, you're going to use us for those purposes. We pray that we would be open and willing to be used by you. In Jesus' name, amen.